When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 1. September. Back to school. The make-believe of a beginning. The bank holiday weekend is over. Summer is waning. And as the season turns, the soft, slanting afternoon light reminds us it's time to be getting ready for the new term. For some weeks, vast electronic billboards looming over city roads have borne the cheerful exhortation, Back to school! The angelic, tousle-headed children, pictured wearing their Teflon-coated school trousers with improbably white shirts and artfully skewed ties, seem to think that none of us can wait for the holidays to be over. Real children, alert for any shopping opportunity, badger their parents for new stationery with its cellophane-wrapped, freshly-minted smell and brightly-coloured promise, pristine pads of hole-punched paper, rainbow post-it notes, neat geometry sets, rulers, rubbers and writing equipment in every shape and colour. For them, the time soon comes to pack your bag, board the school bus, find your locker in the cloakroom and print your name neatly on a fresh exercise book. For parents, after the flurry of gathering everything, once the term starts, a little silence falls. And for the teachers and the head, the task is to get the whole glittering enterprise launched once again. As a new academic year begins, everyone has their own hopes and aspirations and perhaps some anxieties too. This is when the foundations are laid for the school life that unfolds month by month and which I will sketch through the pages of this book. A book, a chapter, a school life, what does it mean to start something? And is a beginning ever truly that? Men can do nothing without the make-believe of a beginning, writes George Eliot as the opening words of Daniel Deronda. Something in us needs that sense of starting afresh to give us purpose. We want to separate what has gone before from what is to come, to shape and construct the future. Perhaps it reflects our fundamental optimism, and nowhere is that felt more powerfully than in a school where young people are looking to their future and all the possibilities it holds. With their 
ingrained temporal structure of a year divided into three terms, terms divided into weeks, weeks into the daily timetable, and each day into its lesson compartments, schools provide regular opportunities for that act of renewal. At the same time, the annual starting point is odd. Why September? If, like me, you've spent your life in education, you are hardwired to see the month that ushers in autumn, two-thirds of the way through the calendar year, as its beginning. Children are no longer employed in the fields during the summer months gathering in the harvest, yet the academic year still starts here. The long annual summer holiday in July seems at first a release from the remorselessness of the school year. But all too soon for children set free, the axis turns and the new term looms. Even now, after so many years, I feel a certain habitual apprehension at this time. Will all go well with those first few days? Going back to school is a bit like getting out for that morning run. The thought of it is the worst bit. Once you've done it, you remember how you enjoy it, and each year there is a moment to begin again. Japanese children return to school in April, when the spring cherry blossom offers the most natural sign of new beginnings. Different traditions, but the same effect. A page turned and a fresh start. The first day arrives, and the school buildings that have been eerily quiet, only the noise of a distant drill from some maintenance work breaking the silence, are suddenly filling with voices. Younger children make their way through the school gates, carrying their two new rucksacks, eyeing the older ones, who, oblivious, are nonchalantly removing earbuds. Parents, dismissed, wave goodbye and hesitate, feeling a mixture of anxiety and relief. Inside, teachers are already in their classrooms, notice boards cleared, preparing for the arrival of their classes. As a young teacher, I would print up my long blue mark book with the names of the pupils in each of my glasses on the left-hand side, the double spread of squared cream paper ready to receive the recorded marks that would build up like a secret code of letters and herringbone strokes across the page as the year wore on. A whole blueprint was contained in those thick, pristine pages. The yet-to-be-written history of your world of your life as a teacher and of the progress of pupils in your care. What are your recollections of going back to school? It's a question that often prompts strong reactions. Whether or not we enjoyed them at the time, our school days are formative. Whatever our path in life, especially if we're parents contemplating the schooling of our children, or if we become professional teachers, our own experience of being a pupil is never far below the surface, inevitably colouring our views. However long ago it was, we have a reservoir of stored memories of our early lives and our time at school which can shed light on how we've developed into our adult selves. You might be surprised to find just how fresh those early memories are once you invite them to the surface. Affection, 
and a certain nostalgia may sweeten the picture. But all those injustices or near misses come straight back too. Sadly, some are seriously scarred by the memories, and it's a pity that we hear so many more of those stories than the happier ones. Whatever it was like, it's now a part of you. Given how much we read about people who were miserable at school, I feel lucky that for me it was for the most part a happy experience. This has been continually influential in my work because I know from first-hand experience that there are few things so grounding and reassuring to a child as feeling you truly belong in your school community. When school takes on that unforced, comfortable familiarity, the buildings themselves, the favourite corners where you linger with your friends, the routes and corridors you traverse at full tilt, unless a teacher is coming, your lessons, the teachers themselves, your friends, the soundscape of bells and clatter, the smell of the polish even, these things make up your entire world. There's no sense of being in some anteroom, peering in from the sidelines of an adult world, waiting for real life to begin. This is it, and you are the centre of it. When pupils feel at home at school in this way, they are at their most naturally confident, and this is when the best learning is done. As a head, I simply wanted every child to know that feeling, so creating the conditions for it informed everything. Of course, there are always some children who find it more difficult to integrate, even though often they may very much want to belong. In a high-achieving intellectual environment, where you test for many things, but not emotional intelligence, there are more pupils than you might think who, despite their prodigious gifts, find the social contact with others difficult. And there are always a few who stubbornly resist, at odds with their school, rejecting its values and authority. They will not allow their individuality to be diluted, to be lured into some institutional conformity and suffer agency capture. They would be the grit in the oyster. But over time, a little pearl would often secrete itself around these too. For on the whole especially when joining a new school at age 11, children don't want to be different or to stand out. They want to be accepted, and the first few weeks are all about fitting in and becoming part of the tribe. Pupils learn to belong by watching, adapting, and through myriad small adjustments that often go under adult radar. Their pack is their form or tutor group, and this is the unit in which they first find their feet. The importance of helping new pupils feel secure and grounded in their year group was a priority for me as a head, because of something that happened to me, no doubt from the best of intentions, when at school in my first senior school year. I had joined my senior school, Sunny Hill, known more formally as Bruton School for Girls, set on a rolling green hilltop outside Bruton, Somerset, in 1968. Aged ten, I was placed in Miss Reed's first form class. The youngest children in the school 
We were taught in a long wooden hut with a gabled roof and its own small garden, rickety windows and walls pockmarked by drawing pins where our pictures, stories and poems were proudly displayed. Miss Reed, a tiny person with the bright brown eyes of a mouse, had the appearance of someone who spent her weekends taking bracing walks along cliff paths. That first term, I quickly made friends and felt both absorbed and stimulated by everything we did. It was one of the happiest of my school days. But then everything changed. One morning, at the start of the second term, Miss Reed called me up to her desk. I've something to tell you, Clarissa, she said, eyes twinkling. You're being moved up a year. The work will be more stretching, and it's also that you're more mature than the others. Mature? What was that? My world had just fallen apart. When was I to start? Well, there was no time like the present. It would be at once. Miserably, I said goodbye to my friends and was escorted down unfamiliar corridors to the alien, too bright world of my new form room, where, at the desk next to mine, a sturdy girl with a pale brown fringe and sensible glasses, called Margaret Morgan, had been told to look after me. Margaret was politely kind, but after a few days she admitted one break time how she was missing spending time with her best friend, Cecily Crasker, and gratefully went off to find her. Sitting alone on a wall, I hoped I didn't look too conspicuous and longed for the bell to ring so that I could return to the anonymity of the class. Untethered from the lovely security of Miss Reed's class and my friends, I was lost. I dreaded the long lunch hours where I would drift around, trying to attach myself to one group of girls or another. They were kind enough, but nobody really wanted me. Friendships had formed a year ago, and this new, younger girl was an awkward thing. I felt childish next to these impossibly mature 13-year-olds who had started to wear bras and have periods. Once only interested in the fascinating world of discovery that was the first-form classroom, now I was ashamed of my failure to reach these very different milestones. At last, after much hinting, my mother did allow me to have a bra, and there was a mortifying trip to the local outfitters, where she and the well-padded assistant exchanged amused glances as an infinitesimally small garment was selected. We bought two, neatly packed in cardboard boxes, like clothing for a doll. One on, one in the wash, the assistant said efficiently. The anxiously awaited arrival of my periods, a rite of passage in the lives of all young girls, came to me long after it had ceased to be a newsworthy matter to our class generally, accompanied by a silent relief that, alone in the bathroom at home, I shared with no one. Children adapt and are often more resilient than we expect. I eventually settled into the new class and by the following year had made friends and was starting to enjoy academic work again. From that unnecessarily rocky start... I went on to have six more happy years at the school. In my penultimate year, unlooked-for success was secured as a result of a chance meeting between my grandmother and the headmistress in a local tea shop. Miss Cumberledge, 
I will come back to her later, seeking no doubt to make polite conversation, said to my grandmother, Clarissa seems to be doing very well at school. To which my grandmother replied magnificently, Doing well? Clarissa could run an empire. No doubt on the strength of this, I was soon appointed one of the four head girls. So all ended well, but that early experience of being moved up always seemed a pointless emotional setback. Never more so than when I emerged at the other end of the school, having taken my A-levels at barely seventeen, too young to go to university. I spent an unremarkable gap year, working in our local pub and interrailing around Europe. Perhaps I was just doing a bit more growing up. It felt as if I'd been forced through things too quickly. Whoever we are, our experience of school informs our values and our adult view of the world. Having been very young in the year, I'm now particularly alive to that predicament in school children and how it affects them in ways that may go undetected by the adult radar. Children live their school lives amongst their peers and experience much that adults around them, however well-intentioned, will never know. One reason why bullying and unkindness can be so hard to detect. Age matters hugely in early adolescence. However intellectually advanced a pupil is, if her or his emotional and physical development are not aligned with that of peers, especially around puberty, then being fast-tracked through the system may well do more harm than good. Parents can be impatient for their children to achieve academic milestones. But to what end? Of course, they need to be stimulated, but this can happen in so many lateral ways. They also need time to grow and be themselves, to develop at their own pace amongst friends and peers with whom they feel at home. This is what creates confidence and provides a secure foundation for their self-esteem throughout life. Even where things appear to go smoothly from the outside, not every child settles into a new school easily. As the one-time head of a boarding school, I know something about homesickness, that most physical feeling, creating a dull ache in the middle of you, as if there is a gap there exactly the shape that home and all that is familiar should be. It can be felt by children in day schools just as fiercely. A school day when you feel left out or lonely or overwhelmed can seem to last forever. But for many, just like my own period of unhappiness, it almost always passes. At Queenswood, I can recall only one girl out of the many hundreds of boarders whose homesickness seemed to have no cure. And this had more to do with anxieties about an unstable home situation than with being at school. While not all children will necessarily adapt to and enjoy boarding, parents who are sympathetic listeners, while staying positive about the new experience and waiting for time to do its work, are likely to see their child settle happily. I've often smiled to myself on hearing older girls recalling their own difficult initial experiences as a way of helping younger pupils through those early weeks. Self-possessed young women now, and with the wisdom of experience, they had the air of having left such worries far behind. For many children, 
the start of senior school is exciting. There might be apprehension at first, but the expectation of a new beginning soon takes over. There's so much to learn. New friends to make, new teachers to meet, new habits and traditions to learn about. All part of becoming a member of this new community. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. To promote the building of confidence, at St Paul's, we deliberately kept our forms or tutor groups small, around 12. Two joined together made a teaching group so that it would be easier for the children to make friends quickly and get to know their pastoral or homeroom tutor. At a London school with a scattered catchment area, we also grouped the children as much as possible by geography, so that you would be likely to find two or three girls in your group who lived reasonably close. Over the first few weeks, there would be careful attention paid to helping everyone settle in and make friends, including a much-anticipated one-day visit to an outdoor activity centre, with team-building exercises and plenty of opportunity to get extremely wet and muddy, which the staff looked forward to nearly as much, or so they claimed afterwards. By half-term, most would feel completely at home in their new school. It isn't just the pupils who have to adapt, however. Their parents face challenges too. If you're a parent on the brink of seeing your child move to secondary school, you may well have conflicting emotions. Excitement at the new opportunities opening up, mixed with fear that you will suddenly feel redundant and pushed away. All those years of having fragile artwork and sticky cookery pressed into your hands at the school gates, of checking satchels for squashed letters about the next school trip or dress-up day, of hearing in detail what Miss Eyelash said about hedgehogs. All this is about to give way to a new, more grown-up experience for your child. And also for you. If, for pupils, it's about fitting in, for mum and dad, it's about building trust in the school and letting go, especially when the children leave the normally smaller and cosier environment of their prep or primary school and, at age 11, transfer to senior school. Parents wonder what their role will be now that the children no longer seem eager to share every detail of their day but look past the too familiar face at the school gate to something or someone more interesting answering the eager question So, what did you do today? 
with a shrug of the shoulders and that familiar adolescent brush off. Ah, oh, stuff. For the leadership team at the school, carefully building a relationship not just with the new pupil but also with their parents is vital. For it's the school which is the newcomer in this triangular relationship. Schools are used to doing the talking, to setting out the expectations, and this is important. But first, establishing the relationship with the family means being ready to listen and learn, demonstrating trust in and respect for parents' knowledge and experience by encouraging them to share as much as possible about their child. Almost all parents secretly believe some not so secretly, that their own children are the most wonderful young people in the world. I know mine are. Parents love any opportunity to talk about these remarkable individuals they've created and nurtured. What topic could possibly be of greater interest? A parent's view of their child is at once the most informed and also the most subjective. So, as new families join St Paul's, I would invite the parents to write me a letter about their daughter. Note, this was to be a letter. The importance of the subject matter meant this was going to be something you would take time to think about. Not a form to be filled in hurriedly or a dashed-off email, even though some would inevitably arrive electronically. I asked parents simply to tell me as much as they could about their daughter's personality and interests, about the family and about any unusual experiences she might have had that it would be useful for us to know about. These might be special triumphs or achievements. Many parents delighted in providing a long list of those. And equally, they might be difficult life events. It would all help us understand her better. Most parents appeared thoroughly to enjoy the process and put great thought into it. Each new pupil came alive on the page in the voice of her mother or father. We came to parenthood late, and Hattie has continued to amaze and astonish us since the day she was born. She cannot wait to start senior school. Or, Lola has a very strong sense of right and wrong and finds it hard to stand by and watch any unkindness amongst other children. Or, Maisie has a very close relationship with her grandmother, and they love making up stories together. She's a quiet child, and is therefore somewhat apprehensive about being at a larger school. Or, occasionally, We sometimes feel quite exhausted after a weekend with Zainab. She's looking forward to interviewing her new teachers for the magazine she has recently started writing in her bedroom. And so on. Sometimes I learnt about difficulties, perhaps of loss or separation, that these not-quite-eleven-year-olds had already weathered. How important for us to have this context, to understand them better as we took charge of their education and care. The letters gave parents at the outset an unhurried and respected voice, as well as underlining the importance we attached to their special, uniquely experienced perspective. Of course, they also gave insight into the dynamics of families and their values, 
and what circumstances we might be engaging with as time went on. Families separated across the world because of work commitments, perhaps. Families where there was only one parent, or sometimes families caring for a sibling with disability or an elderly grandparent. Reading these letters, filled with unashamedly partisan love and with hopes and aspirations for a daughter's future, I hoped the parents would keep copies to read again to their daughter as she left school in seven years' time. Tell me about your daughter was perhaps the most powerful conversation opener I ever employed, and it was where each individual girl's story at senior school would begin. Having invited them to write those important letters, during our welcome tea party, I would explain to the crowd of slightly apprehensive new parents that we would be encouraging the girls' independence right from the start. So soon, their faces said. My own mother's maxim was that, as a good parent, you should make your children independent of you as early as possible. And this very practical and sound advice, especially for working mothers, I've always kept in mind. As parents, they would not be told every little thing, because this was a stage where the pupils would be encouraged to take responsibility for themselves and sort out some of their own challenges. There are many things for the girls to adjust to on starting life in a new, bigger school, with more pupils and teachers, more subjects to get used to, and a totally new way of doing things, I would tell them. But we would all be there to help. For example, if as a pupil you're too busy attending lots of exciting after-school clubs to get your homework done, a very familiar problem to many an eager new 11-year-old, this is a thing to talk to your tutor about. You don't need to rush to involve your mother or father. At this I would see the parents looking hesitant. Surely it was up to them to know everything, to smooth away all the snowdrifts blocking their path. No, I would say firmly. Education is about learning to solve problems for yourself. Even though that adjustment and releasing of parental control is very hard. For us parents, this learning to let go is a lifelong counterintuitive lesson. I'm still working on it, and my children are in their early 20s. And we're greatly helped in the adjustment if, at the secondary stage, the school makes the effort to forge an effective and trusting relationship with us. As a head, I was always aware that mutual trust could only be built up over time, but the school needed to make clear that this was a priority. Reminding parents that as a parent myself, I was not unaware of the adjustment they were having to make. At that same welcome tea party, I would talk about the exciting journey we were embarking on together. Entering into partnership in the care and education of their children, and how important it was that we established good channels of communication. And then kept them open. During your daughter's time with us, there will be ups and downs, I warned lightly. The teenage years are coming. If you're having difficulty adjusting to that bored sigh when you ask what your daughter did at school, wait until you are getting the adolescent eye roll accompanied by hello 
when you make some well-intentioned but hopelessly inept remark about modern social mores or popular culture. School and home need to work together, or at least in trusting partnership. With long experience of teenagers, we've dealt with most things. Absenteeism, amnesia about homework deadlines, absconding, arson. One could go on through the alphabet, but you get my point. We try always to operate from the principle that the school is a place to learn about boundaries, but wherever possible to have the chance to start again and do better. But of course we know that having heard your daughter's own account of events, you may not necessarily always see things as we do. If as parents you're unhappy about the way we handle something, try not to talk about the school critically in front of your daughter at home, but come and talk to me or your daughter's tutor. Children are naturally loyal, both to their school and to their parents. The girl who has heard her parents running the school down at home cannot then look her headmistress in the eye. An invisible line has been crossed. Something is wrong in her world. I've seen this on a few occasions and it always saddens me to see the girl removed from that happy circle of security and unsure of the way back. We need to build up to see her through good times and bad that precious triangular relationship of trust and respect between pupil, parents and school. This is incredibly important to the security and stability of your daughter. Once it has been damaged, it can be very difficult to repair. If you promise not to criticise us at home, I would end with a wry smile, I promise I will not say to your daughter, I hear your mother has been complaining again, Anya. If the parents felt they had had a talking to from the headmistress, well, they had. Better that than have communication break down later, when inevitably it would be the girl who suffered. So how to be a good new parent? Remember that whatever school meant to you, your child is writing her own story. Get used to the fact that you will not know everything. Be sure to forge a good relationship with your child's most important adult at school, probably the tutor, which means not expecting daily personal bulletins on progress, but a relationship of trust where you would feel comfortable to be in touch if you had a genuine concern or worry. Respect the fact that your child will choose her own friends, develop her own opinions and explore her own interests. This is her education, after all. Encourage and enjoy her growing independence, for just as she develops her separate life from you, just as surely she will want, in her own time, to share parts of it too. In thinking about ourselves as former pupils and now as parents, projecting our own memories of school onto the fresh experience of our children, we have always to keep in mind that the world today is very different from the world in which we grew up ourselves. It sounds so obvious. The generation growing up in schools today, sometimes called Generation Z or the post-millennial generation, have, for one thing, never known a world without the internet, the iPhone and the iPad. Using technology comes naturally to them 
and they're used to the freedoms it brings. The ability to find out information instantly. The ability to connect with others, unlimited by time and space. And the ability to create virtual identities, which appear to be untrammeled by the responsibilities of normal life. In cities especially, children tend to be both less connected to their immediate communities and less interested in national politics, while at the same time being better informed about the macro, global problems of inequality, poverty and climate change. Following the financial crisis of 2008 and the revaluation of financial power, together with the loss of respect for certain industries, such as banking, there is now a more general questioning of the authority of institutions. This generation does not find virtue in patience, with the answer to anything a screen touch away. Students value speed over accuracy. However, while they may be able to source information very fast, they're less equipped to discriminate as to whether sources are trustworthy. When you take a book out of the school library, you pretty much know it's worth reading or it wouldn't be there. Look up something online and you don't necessarily have that assurance. The prevalence of mental ill health in young people points, amongst other things, to the darker side of the fast-moving and technological world they inhabit and the sense of being alone which prevails within the virtual world of cyber-connectivity. All that said... Generation Z are fired with a great sense of social responsibility. They grasp the fact that if the species is to survive, they will need to turn a competitive world in which wealth is more and more unequally distributed into a collaborative one where shrinking natural resources are shared. Many opt to volunteer their time in projects which have social benefits either at home or abroad. Almost every girl in the top year was doing this by the time I left St Paul's. And they look forward to careers which will be more varied and less linear than those their parents have experienced. I will return to specific aspects of this wider context and the Generation Z mindset in later chapters. The point to emphasise here is that the prevailing characteristic which they, and therefore schools, need to grapple with, is a climate of much greater uncertainty and unpredictability. This provides challenge and opportunity, and we have to prepare them for both. To lead fulfilled lives and contribute to society, they will need more than their natural optimism and enviably short memory for things that went wrong. They will need creativity and imagination the ability to work with others and to apply their knowledge in new situations, and they will also need resilience and grit. Increasingly, therefore, these are qualities we are actively addressing in our schools. At the start of the year, for the school itself, with all the hopes and aspirations of so many people to meet and manage, creating the make-believe of a beginning offers special challenges for leadership and for teamwork. I often thought of the process in terms of flying a large, fully loaded passenger aircraft. As the head, you're the pilot. You climb aboard, settle into your seat and check the controls, remove your peaked cap and taxi down the runway. 
The great machine, loaded with its freight of people, luggage and expectations, gathers speed, and then, by a miracle of engineering, with much shuddering and thanks to laws of physics that few understand, the whole thing climbs into the skies and becomes airborne. At St Paul's, with almost 250 staff and over 740 pupils, that point came when the first staff meeting, the first assembly and the arrival and induction of new staff and pupils were all comfortably ticked off. At last, I would put away my file with its dividers marked beginning of school year and think to myself, OK, so far so good. Now we climb to cruising altitude. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.